Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In the middle decades of the 20th century in New York City, Dubrow's cafeterias in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn and the Garment District of Manhattan were places to get out of your apartment, have coffee with friends, or enjoy a hearty but affordable meal. Dubrow's cafeterias were grounded in the world of Jewish immigrants and their children, and they thrived in years when Flatbush and the Garment District each had a distinctly Jewish character. The cafeterias were also places where working-class and modestly middle-class New Yorkers of European ancestry, with few great luxuries in their lives, could enjoy a taste of culinary abundance. Under demographic changes, economic decay, and high crime in the 1970s and 1980s, the world that produced Dubrow's came apart. The Brooklyn branch of Dubrow's closed in 1978, the Manhattan branch in 1985. But before Dubrow's cafeterias were shuttered, Marsha Bricker Halperin captured their mood and their patrons in black and white photographs. These pictures, along with essays by the playwright Donald Margulies and the historian Deborah Dash Moore, constitute Marsha's book, Kibitz and Nash, When We All Met at Dubrow's Cafeteria, published by Cornell University Press and winner of a National Jewish Book Council Prize for food writing and cookbooks. I'm Rob Snyder for the New Books Network and the Gotham Center for New York City History at the City University of New York. I'm talking with Marsha Bricker Halpern. Welcome, Marsha. So tell me how you started taking photographs at Dubrow's. So uh, Dubrow's was in my neighborhood. King's Highway was a happening place back then. Uh, people came from all over the shop there. I used to play a game with my friends where from memory, we would try to name the stores down, you know, okay, 13th Street, there's Barracini and Ebinger's, uh, you know, Woolworth's. We would play that as a game. It was it was like a mecca, that street. And on the corner of 16th, right by the train, was this huge cafeteria, which I had never gone into, really. And what brought you there to take photographs? So, um... I always I was studying art at Brooklyn College. Uh, the street I wanted to be a street photographer. That was the thing back then. You got your your handheld SLR camera, um, and so there were people all around there. There was good lighting because the overhang of the train created some some shadows, and so I'm on the street on that corner taking photos. And uh, February rolled around. It was very cold. My ungloved hands were holding this metal camera. And they're frozen. And I go to advance the film. And it's kind of creaking. Everything's frozen. The camera and me. Well, there's this revolving door of the cafeteria there. And I said, okay, I have to go inside and warm up. And I entered, and and just the cavernous space hit me immediately. And um, that was my entree. Well, who were the patrons that you found there? 
yeah, I looked around and there were mostly people sitting alone at tables uh, with these great faces, with the light spilling in these huge windows. And I loved taking portraits. I had been taking portraits of my grandmother. So I had this already experienced taking pictures of old people. <laughs> and there they were, a whole cafeteria full of them <laughs> during the day. Um, and um, little by little, I took a few pictures. Uh, it felt like a comfortable place. It was safer than being out on the street. As you said, New York in the 70s, I was afraid of uh, my camera being snatched or something. What did you say when you started taking pictures? Nothing. <laughs> they ignored me. <laughs> that was good. Could you say a little more about the ethnic mix of the people who were there? So, so when I first went in and during the day, there were older people. The over 80 club met every morning at 10 a.m., bunch of guys. Uh, and they were, they were, some of them were Jewish, some were Italian, um, other Eastern European. It wasn't 100% Jewish. The neighborhood was a really a mix of a, Italian Jewish and Irish. And those were my friends going to school and growing up in the neighborhood. Kind of a mix of those. Uh, and they all came to do browse. The food, it did have some Jewish foods, you know, balinsas and gefilte fish were on the menu. But um, it was, so was a ham sandwich. So it, it appealed to everyone. Any black or Puerto Rican customers when you were going there? Customers, I don't have I, any pictures, I think, of customers. But the staff, the staff that bust the tables, that work behind the counters, was, was a complete, um, you know, uh, education in geography because people were from all over the world, uh, Afghanistan and China and other places, and they really wanted me to take their pictures huh. because I think they would send them home. They would strike these remarkable poses, very, um, you know, proud poses. They'd have their paper dubrows cap on and would strike this pose. Sometimes they wanted to be in groups with the other workers. I think they sent those pictures home to their families. Or to, you know, to show here I am in the new world, uh, you know, and, I, and they especially wanted to take pictures with the boss. What kind of camera were you using in these years? Uh, so um, my father had taken me to Willoughby's camera in Manhattan, uh, 32nd Street, and they put out a few cameras. And when I picked up a Pentax camera, it just, it was just streamlined and, and just enough weight for my hand. It was just wonderful. Now, I just recently found out something very interesting, that that was the camera that Paul McCartney from the Beatles picked. And he has, he has photographs that he did. He was documenting the Beatles and they came over. And we used the same kind of camera. Any particular techniques that you use to take pictures inside there? Well, one of the things that I realized early on was I started going all different times at night, especially. 
And I couldn't use a flash in there. Uh, two things. First of all, um, the first time I used the flash, there was this whole conversation that went on about how the lights are flickering in the place and they're going to go out. And these were the days when there were blackouts in New York. <laughs> uh, there was a famous one around those years and uh, people sought shelter in Duper House. Uh, so so it, it caused too much um, distraction. The other thing was I didn't like the harshness of the light on the people's faces. So I'm shooting uh, handheld, very fast uh, film uh, that you can try X film. And I'm experimenting in the darkroom with ways to develop it so I can get all the detail in the shadowing area. So I was learning a lot about photography as I was photographing the Dubras. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that in 1977, you were hired under the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, also called CETA. What was CETA and what did you do working under CETA? Oh, I did. Um, so after this time of trying to be a street photographer, I was uh, chronically unemployed. <laughs> um, and... Um, and then that program came about. I went to the uh, went to pick up my. You might enjoy this. My application from the borough president's offices. That's where um, they were distributed. One of the places, uh, and I applied to this program, and it put you to work with nonprofits photographing. My um, my first assignment was out in Brighton Beach working for a social services organization, photographing the Soviet emigres that had just started coming in those years. And they gave me entree to these people. I went to people's houses and worked with them. And of course, the boardwalk and the streets and restaurants and weddings. And um, so I did that. And, and then they gave me other wonderful assignments. And so for two years under that, I'm photographing constantly how did that affect you as a photographer getting to put in so much work so early in your career i would be i would photograph all day and then be in the dark room all night i mean i had the energy to do that back then i i was immersed it was such a wonderful program i learned so much i created so much work which i have and i'm just beginning to deep dive into those archives and unearth that work and see what's there. You wrote in your book that Dubrow's was a penny university. Tell me what you mean by that. I would sit around with these people and um, yeah, I had, you know, they would love, you know, it's kind of like page six gossip kind of things there, you know. And I remember one day, now I kept a journal, so I remember a lot but I went back. I have a little black journal where I wrote things down. And there's a whole thing about Eddie Fisher and wives and everything. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't care about this kind of thing in my early 20s. But, you know, so they they were talking about these things. And I was learning about um, that. Uh, they tried to teach me the handicap horses with the daily racing form. <laughs> Um, those kinds of things. <laughs> what kind of relationship do you develop with the folks there? Um, 
I was very popular, I have to say. Um, it got to the point where, um, you know, I wanted to be a li- I wanted to take impromptu pictures. I wanted to sit there and I saw somebody or some interaction. I wanted to, to you know, catch that. Um, but I started to walk in after a year or two photographing there because I gave out pictures to the people. If I was, I printed their portrait in the dark room that night and, you know, some of them came out not as great as it was, you know, I'm burning and dodging these pictures. It's, it's not like working on a computer where you can fix things in a second. So I would give out, the, I had a huge envelope, I'd give out the prints to people. Well, I became so popular that when I'd walk in the door, I'm not exaggerating. People would start gesturing me over the dinner table. They'd come and get me, come sit with us. Don't you want a Danish, a piece of cheesecake? Um, and then, you know, they wanted me to take their pictures, posed portraits. But um, I did do a lot of more posed or collaborative photos, I would call them. You know, how how we talk about, I want, you to, I want to catch you, you know, not posed. Mm-hmm. you know relaxed so so um so yeah i became known the staff knew me and the manager knew me and said nothing now beyond the people what about the food did you have favorite dishes there so um in order to be kind of light on my feet there <laughs> like and move around i didn't eat much sometimes i don't remember eating much at all <laughs> Um, I did have, uh, one thing, if I was hungry, they made, um, a, they made a piece of kugel. It must've been a fist pie and it came in a bowl, not on a plate because this thing would just, it was, um, and they would spoon, um, a thick, sweet cherry sauce on it, kind of bright bread. <laughs> That was really delicious. <laughs> now, eventually you moved over to photographing Dubrow's Cafeteria on 7th Avenue at 38th Street in Manhattan. How did the Brooklyn customers compare to the Manhattan customers? So I think one of the first times I went to Manhattan was lunch hour. And it was a madhouse. I was used to very quiet Brooklyn and being able to sit and, and move around. Every table was filled with mostly men at lunchtime also, uh, eating quickly, lots of cigar smoking. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't really a pleasant environment for me uh, to sit around there. Um and they were people from the industry that came there. They all knew each other, uh, making deals. Um, a woman told me that she, they, the guys used to come back after lunch at Dubrow's, back to the the where the showroom, and she was the typist. And they would bring orders on the napkins from Dubrow's. So they're doing business at lunch hour, writing down orders on these napkins and then giving them the hard to type up. So, so we, 2000 Manhattan was really an office for the garment industry. 
it was the hub of the drama district. It was, especially at mealtimes, it was, a, it was for the, you know, it was a select, select group. So I didn't make connections there in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a wonderful space and I did meet people and I did photograph there. Um, but the best time there was closing night in 1985 when a small group of us <laughs> devotees showed up and we all sat around and we talked and we took pictures of each other and put spoons in our pockets and, um, you know, had pie and tea together. That that was a community night there. It, you know, in retrospect, Dubrow's in Brooklyn and Dubrow's in Manhattan were, were part of a world that was vanishing at the time. Did the people you were photographing think of themselves that way? Um, I, they knew. They knew that, that cafeterias were going out of business. I have a... Um, you know, a page in my journal with listings that I took out of uh, the yellow pages of the fun book of cafeterias, and they're all crossed out with a date of when they crossed closed. So, of course, the automats that had closed, but all kinds of other small cafeterias that were around, and I started visiting some of them. Um, but again, I didn't, it wasn't that connection Dubrow's in Brooklyn was a really unique place. Uh, to this day, when there's a posting on Facebook about it, everybody talks about, you know, the relationships there. I met my friends. I, I went on a date. I, you know, my wife and I used to go there. Oh, my grandfather worked there giving out the tickets. It, it The connections to it are remarkable. You don't hear that about um, other cafeterias. You worked for 35 years in education. Tell us what you did and where. So I had started out in the 70s um, teaching art, and then, you know, they were cutting arts from the schools. So I did other things, a uh, little adjunct, a little private school. Uh, and then one day a friend said, you know, you get a real job. And they said, you know, they really need special ed teachers. You'd be good. Uh, you can do this. And uh, I went to, you know, to a school. I had a license in art. But I went into this school for severely disabled students. And, you know, it was a remarkable place. Maybe I thought I could photograph there, thinking back. But um, I, um, I took the job there. And um, I worked in special ed for many, many years. And interestingly enough, I worked with uh, autistic students. And a lot of their the ways um, that their um, pedagogical materials are visual. And I was always using photographs or art or something in my teaching, if it was math or science or whatever I, you know, literacy. So I was really able to use my skills all those years. I always had a digital camera with me when I was teaching um, from when they were, when they first started, half a megabyte cameras. Uh, So um, it suited me for those years. 
What led you to finally look at your old Dudebrow's photographs after you retired? Well, I had been keeping those boxes very carefully, you know, moved or something. Those boxes were just treated very carefully with my negatives. And I, I was planning upon retirement to maybe, you know, maybe have an exhibit somewhere of some photos, like I, you know, like in the old days when I first started out. Uh, I thought I would explore that. And uh, the day after I retired, I just hit the ground running. I, st I was just scanning and putting together things for um, proposals. And, and I knew I had a book. Yeah. Um, my journal from 1978 says maybe someday this could be a book. Wow. Wow. You know, back in those days, you were studying at Brooklyn College, first as an art major, then for an MFA. Did any of the professors there have an influence on you? Did you pick up things that you brought to this project? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, I I knew I was studying in this photo, you know, with the, the photo league people. So Walter Rosenblum, who had been in that. But we had also organized through the new school nights where um, they had panels with photographers. And this was set up, um, and they were trying for the new school students, Brooklyn College students, to um, maybe revive the photo league. And so they had people would come to these evening programs, uh, Eugene Smith, Roy DeCarava. Um, I remember these nights going there and, and learning about their photographs and, and I'd buy their books at the Strand, you know, and and um, I just was so, I thought this was, the bit, I just loved this work. I still do. Um, and they were so, and then I had an opportunity to take Lizette Modell's class at the New School. Um, and um, I was helping them there with some programming and things. So I took her class, and then they gave me the job to walk her home after class at night. Because she was there, you know, their treasure, this little old lady who lived in the village in the 70s. They wanted to make sure she got home okay. So I got to know her just a little bit. But she did look at my work, and I knew that if she says, this is, this is something you should keep working on, and she did say that to me, that's the word. <laughs> For our listeners who are perhaps a bit young, tell us what the Photo League was and why it was so important to you. Um, so these were photographers who just women, lots of women were in it. Uh, and they they were just showing the humanity of New York. They were on the streets. They were showing neighborhoods. They were showing people, uh, you know, doing their daily things. Uh, but they made these documentary photos into works of art. And that yeah. was what was so amazing. Yeah. Um, they there was some. They knew about composition. They knew about lighting, uh, and they structured these. Photos that that are, you know, at first glance just seem to be, oh, some people sitting on a stoop talking. But they're much, much more than that. And and that just was that was my driving 
<laughs> inspiration. You know, it's possible to look at your photographs and, and get nostalgic. But I also found that the photos in your own story were great ways to measure the distance that New York City has traveled in the 50-odd years since you took these photographs. And I'm wondering, what are the big changes that you've seen in this city since you were doing this work, for better and for worse? Well, I think the 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 biggest thing every time I take a picture is how many cell phones there are just all over the all over that image, um, and uh, it's just it's just you know the way photos are it it's just changed things a lot, you know. Um, you take a photo, everybody else is about to take a photo or has taken a photo or is holding, you know, the gestures are just different as people walk. There's a cat, you know, a cell phone in their hands. Uh, there's, so that, that's in photographing. That's the first thing I notice everywhere. And of course, um, with the dissemination of photos, people don't ask me, oh, you can put it in a newspaper or what are you going to do with it? You know, now they're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's going to end up all over the internet. Don't take my picture. Mm -hmm. A lot of people's first reaction. Mm. So uh, that's a big change. Um, The city, I think, is um, some places are still as interesting and some streets are, are much more generic. Um, and I just find when I see um, a storefront that's, you know, the glass, chrome, whatever kind, it doesn't appeal as much. Um, but when I used to walk the street, the, the storefront seems to be fascinating. But there are neighborhoods and places you can still find, you know, that uh, I've been in flushing, photographing. The street's just amazing. Uh, Brighton Beach, the streets are amazing. Um, I I shot a lot under the Cedar program in Hell's Kitchen, but, you know, Ninth Tenth Avenue um, for a housing organization. So I really got it got to know people in their houses on their stoops and everything. And I go back there, and and all those streets where there were you know the small buildings are now huge luxury housing so there's that's disappointing but but um you know that's happened through time the city's always changing um it it's you know and things decay and then they rebuild and they'll decay again i guess someday um so you know i try to capture what's what's interesting now what particular neighborhoods are you working on now that fascinate you? So I actually had an opportunity to do a Brighton Beach then and now. And uh, so I've been back a few times. People are fabulous. I mean, I've gone into stores and different places. I've been able to, to hook up with um, a social service agency there. And I went to a, an event, a puppy therapy event for Holocaust survivors the other day. Um, and so I'm getting to know some people there. I'm finding um, young people there that, that, are, that are interesting, that are working there. 
and their, you know, hopes for the future. You know, everybody has a hope for the future there. In the 70s, there were a lot of people there from the Soviet Union, a lot of Soviet Jewish refugees. Who are you finding there today? Um, I'm finding um, people now from all over the world. Um, I had to go and look up where uh, Samarkand and Tashkent and Kyrgyzstan were. And, um, you know, there are people there from the Ukraine, many people who came thinking they were coming temporarily uh, to Brighton Beach, uh, having a difficult time realizing they might not be able to go back, at least not yet. Uh, But you're finding some Russian dissidents even uh, that have come over and are there. Uh, so it's it's a it's a different group than before. Before it was the old, you know, the old people who had come earlier in the century from the same places from Poland, like my you know, like my grandparents uh, had come there, and then there was the new wave, and now there's more new waves from other countries, and there's there's even. Um, and I haven't met some of them, but you see, there's there's people from Mexico. I met a um, a Mexican rapper the other day. I photographed, and um, there are people from Pakistan I know and different places. So the food there reflects everything now. To close, is there any advice you'd give to other photographers who are out shooting on the streets of the city? Um, you know, I think. The advice given to me was, you know, find a story, find a place, find some people, and go back. Every time you go back, it'll look different. Um, You can look more carefully, look for different things, um, and uh, photograph as if there's somebody on your, your shoulder saying, take that picture. Don't let it get away, you know. Um, you know, if somebody absolutely says no, respect that. But um, try to get to know the person a little bit if you want to photograph them or the area you're in and um, keep at it. Well, you've certainly found a special place in Dubrow's. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough historian and professor emeritus at Rutgers University. I've been talking to Marsha Brooker Halpern about her book, Kibbis and Nosh, when we all met at Dubrow's Cafeteria for the Gotham Center for New York City and the New Books Network. Thanks again.